Welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. This is part three of our 2021 highlight episodes. This is our final installment, so a look back at 2021. Happy New Year again, everybody. We are lining up some tremendous guests for 2022 and hopefully get it started off with a bang. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the State Bicycle Company, who you can check out at statebicycle.com. I know that they have just received some more all-road stock, both in the 4130 and the 6061, so that is their steel and aluminum versions of that bike. You can configure the bike a whole bunch of different ways. Check it out at statebicycle.com. Use code ADVENTURE2022. That's going to be good till the end of this month. That's January 2022. So code ADVENTURE2022, and that's going to give you free shipping anywhere in the United States. The podcast is also brought to you by the Black Bibs, home to the legendary $40 bib shorts. They also do a whole lot more than that, as we have told you about before in the past. They are also a partner slash sister company with Starlight Apparel who do custom work. Check both of those companies out, Starlight and the Black Bibs. Also a great follow along on Instagram because then you're going to be aware of when they have limited edition stuff, some seasonality, those types of things. They have some wicked winter gear out now. Check them out at theblackbibs.com. Lastly, the podcast is brought to you by Wheel Science. Visit them at wheelscience.com. We have a code set up for you there. It is Adventure Audio. That's going to give you 10% off a pair of high-performance custom wheels. But uh, Wheel Science has a bit of a different model, which brings incredible value to you in both cross, road, triathlon, gravel, and now mountain bike wheels. So visit them at wheelscience.com and use code Adventure Audio. On to our last look back at 2021. We're excited to bring you conversations with some amazing guests here in 2022. Thanks again for listening. October 1st, we hosted Nick Martin, who founded the Pros Closet. This is another guest who you have known for a really long time. Yeah, Nick's a great guy, you know, bowler guy, and uh, was a pro mountain biker. He was kind kind of a starving pro bike racer for many years and came up with this idea for the pros closet and you know the rest is history it's an incredible story and a great human being yeah it's an awesome story both about athletics and this the this sport that we both love a lot but also yeah. of entrepreneurship so it's a it's a great story so thanks nick for coming on and here's a little bit of our chat with nick martin from the pros closet in wisconsin um okay. southeast ethan wisconsin so i'm a packer yeah. fan through nice. and through nice. um <clears throat> the, literally the day after i graduated college i i jumped in my Volvo wagon with i think i had nine bikes on the top of my um i think it was a 240 volvo and and drove out to to grand junction and um put a stake down there and that was simply for the goal of i was like i want to race my bike professionally and you know, this is my chance to do it. Um, I was lucky enough to have an internship in college with Trek. And when the time came, um, I think that might have, I mean, I don't know what years you were on the postal service, but, um, you know, that was my introduction to the industry and then developed that relationship. And they're like, well, you can manage the regional team. It was the Trek Volkswagen regional team and went out there. And that was my, um, that was my first um, step into the real world, I guess, out of college. Um, and then I proceeded to sell everything I owned when I was out there to maintain that lifestyle. 
Um, all I wanted to do was ride my bike and I proceeded to do that for like six or seven years um, and never had a job and simply um, sold the things around me. And part of that was, you know, getting sponsored gear every year that um, sponsors would change. And I was living in a van at that time. And before I knew it, um, you know, I would have all my teammates stuff selling it for them. And that was really the, the, um, the birth of the pro's closet. So almost sort of by accident. Oh, never had a business plan. Um, I, I didn't even have a computer at the time. I was borrowing my teammate Rochanel's computer um, and shipping things out of the Grand Junction library until I got kicked out for using a tape gun. <laughs> That's amazing. So it, it, it started mostly with parts, not with like complete bikes, but you were shipping immediately. Like that was already part of like the plan was that this stuff can get sold wherever. Yeah, it really started with clothing, um, which is not really a sexy business model is, is use cycling clothing, especially when you're a pro and using it. It's all I lived in my, my bike. It's getting worn hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that because I was in my I was literally in my van, so I didn't have any room to store things. So clothes was um, an easy thing to sell. It was lightweight, easy to to put in my backpack and drive down to the Grand Junction library and ship it out of there. Um, but then we evolved into bikes and I mean, I, we sold everything early in the early days. Um, you, you name it, we sold it, but yeah, that's where, that's where we began. And, and that taught us how to use eBay. And it also taught me how valuable the things around us are. Um, if they're, if they're, they don't necessarily hold value for you or, or, you know, if you're not putting them to use, they will have value to somebody else and you can find, um, you know, extend the life cycle of, of things that already exist and and um, clear up the space and the clutter around you. So at then, what point did you did you have the like did it happen all at once in one moment or did it gradually dawn on you that this could become like an actual e-commerce hub for this kind of thing or did it gradually evolve or was it a light bulb? Oh, it's definitely not a light bulb. Um, it was a gradual thing um, that built and it's continues to build year over year over year and it's snowballed um, beyond what I ever dreamed about. Um, and we just saw, our, we, we saw ourselves at the right place at the right time. But to, in order to get there, we went, it was, you know, eBay was looked at as literally a four letter word in our industry. And as an athlete selling your stuff, that was also a questionable area. Um, so, you know, we never sold new product that we were using. That was like, um, you know, an absolute no, no. Um, so it was always about selling what we were no longer utilizing. And then, you know, team mechanics and, um, you know, Slipstream at the time was um, in Boulder. You know, they had warehouses of extra stuff. Um, Gary Fisher's mechanics were in Boulder, Trex mechanics. So we just started selling um, for all the other teams literally on the on the pro circuit. So, um it was it was it was the pros closets. October seventh, we had Ben Swift and Jay Jones, who are going to do what they call the Boomerang Loop. It's a fourteen thousand kilometer bike ride around Australia hmm. in August of twenty twenty two. They are both um, well, they're not non cyclists anymore, but they don't come from a cycling background. They're now definitely they pretty very, green. Definitely pretty green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. But, uh, and which makes it more exciting, you know, 
it's a it's a big challenge and uh, but I think they can do it for sure yeah they're not screwing around either like no. I follow them on Instagram they're putting in big big training days now and getting really serious and smart about the science and, and prep work so I really think that they can do it uh, they need a lot of things to go right. I mean, that is just an immense challenge, but I think that they can do it. And they're also both incredibly likable guys, and they're doing all of this to raise money for uh, Mindful Oz, which is a nonprofit organization uh, focused on mental health. So that's great, uh, which which is a, a personal story for both of them, too. So here's a little bit of Ben Swift and Jay Jones on the Boomerang, Boomerang Loop. Cycling around Australia using like an assault bike, and you do it in the gym. <laughs> uh, so a lot of people didn't actually believe us and realize that we we're doing it. And obviously, as uh, we've got a little bit more media attention, our Instagram and stuff like that, and, and people can see us out training now. Now people are realizing, okay, these guys are actually for real and very supportive. Uh, but I haven't told my my family yet because I know my parents and and my brother and everyone would get quite worried back home. So I'm going to tell them maybe a month before I leave. <laughs> That's great. That's, all right, we'll keep it a secret. Don't tell them. <laughs> yeah, hopefully don't, they don't listen to Adventure Audio. Um, it's a massive undertaking, guys. Like, how, how do you feel like you've been responding to the training that you've done so far? Do you feel like more of a – you're going to call yourself a cyclist way before you're finished. Uh, <laughs> would you call yourself one yet? Does it feel like it? No, not for me personally. I'm still very much new. Um, I, I feel, don't get me wrong, I feel fit. Um, I feel a lot fitter than I did, than I have done in, in recent past. Um, but that's, that was not a hard thing for me to accomplish because I was pretty heavy. So it, I, to feel any bit fitter for me is, is nice. Um, <laughs> that's not to say I can run very fast still. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't feel like a cyclist. I'm still very much in the learning phase of it. But for the majority of this, and, and I'm sure you'll both sort of agree that this is mainly a mental fight. I mean, obviously you're going to be, you're going to, you need to be to a certain level of fitness, but yeah, this is going to be all mental. I mean, after day one or even after the first few hours, and th th that became really apparent. I mean, we knew that anyway, but it became really apparent on the on that day that we did sort of 200 miles uh, round and round and round in circles. Um, it, it's it, 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 your body just sort of goes numb. Well, it did for me anyway. Went sort of numb, and your mind just starts playing, and your mind just keeps ticking over. And if you can sort of silence that, or if you can sort of um, push that into more of a okay, this is where you've got an opportunity to grow. This is where you've got an opportunity for your mind to grow. Then, then that's the way that I personally get over that sort of stuff. Don't get me wrong; it sucks. Uh, going around to 200 miles was painful and difficult, but uh, at the end of the day, we can now looking back on that we can say okay we can lean on that as a bit of experience yeah it was hard but we managed to get through it therefore my next task of being able to do 160k back to back i can lean on the experience of the 200 miles um and, and move forward in that respect so it's all about learning for me um and every step of the way is about learning and the opportunity to grow and and to push yourself a little bit further and hopefully to say well by the time the, the 19th of august comes around I want that to be the downhill portion of it. I mean, I want to be ready to the point where that that's that's the easy bit. That's that's the that's a ride home. So uh, that's my mentality anyway. Whether that becomes to fruition, I don't know. I love it. And what, what kind of mileage goals do you have? Sort of leading into it, do you have like weekly mileage goals and stuff? They've got to be. At the minute, substantial, at, at, right? Yeah, at the minute. I mean, as I say, it's about 
progression and progression progressive loading so at the minute yeah. we're working off uh, i mean we just had a little bit of a week off uh, after we did the 320k we had a bit of a quieter week uh we're just getting back into it but we were doing sort of around and it was started off at around 400 k's a week and then progressing to 480 and then again we drop we drop off and then we'll go up again we'll go from maybe 430 all the way through to 500 depending um and it's also dependent on your sort of perceived um output uh, your perceived exertion so we, we score each session on a scale of either one to ten through one to ten and then depending on that depends on how you then train for the next following for the next following week um but i mean this week there's sorry the week just yeah the week just gone sorry we've been spending a lot of time on sort of working on hills and and how in climbing um we did a bit of sort of a sprint session on the on on Monday. We did a bit of a sprint session, so it's we're trying to make sure that our training is varied so that we're not getting into too much of a routine, but also making sure that we're still spending time in the saddle and then really making sure that our our, our ass is still okay after eight hours in the, in the saddle. Okay, in the middle of October, we had Alison Tetrick on. Uh, I think. Probably anybody who listens to this podcast probably knows who Allison is. She's definitely one of the stars of of uh, bike racing and the alternative racing scene in gravel. Yeah, she's they call I think they call her the queen of gravel. Yeah, she's a three time yeah. gravel world champion. Um, yeah. She's won uh, Unbound. She's she's a big deal. Uh, but yeah. like a lot of people in that mm-hmm. scene, she's just really inspirational, really down to earth, super um, down to earth. Love- Totally. Yeah. yeah. And just yeah. loves the whole scene from, from the people at the back of the pack to the, to the race up front. Yeah. That was so, a great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. We're and grateful to have her carve out some time to spend with yeah. us too. Cause she also has a very busy racing and training calendar as well as, as a, she's a business, very successful business person too. So thank you, Allison, for coming on. And here's a little bit of our chat. We've all done this where you don't feel good enough. I was like, well, I'm going to run the fastest mile then when they do physical testing. I'm going to bench press more. I'm going to be like the best athlete that this coach has ever seen so he doesn't cut me from the lineup. <laughs> like, I just want to play tennis. And so when I graduated, uh, I was in Boston, and that's a really good running culture. So I got into a lot of running. That was kind of my first foray into endurance sports um, versus more plyometrics, quick moving. I also tore my meniscus in college, so I couldn't really do anything fast side to side anymore. I still can't. My knee pops out of socket. So I was doing a lot of running, and I thought I was pretty good at it. I'm pretty tall and big bones, so it turns out I should not be a long endurance runner. So I hurt my knee, of course, again. You know, went to spin class, decided I was going to go do an, like half Ironman. Um, and my grandfather kept telling me to get into bike racing. And he's adorable. Um, he passed away a few years ago, but he was racing into his 80s. And he didn't start racing until he was like 60. And he's racing into his 80s. And he's like, bike racing's the coolest thing ever. And um, I mean, he would have loved to meet you, Tyler. You never got to meet him. But, you know, he watched like your races. And, you know, this was his thing. And uh, he would like bring me back Musette bags from like his master races. And um, I thought it was super dorky, but when I ended up trying to do a couple bike races is like fartlek training for triathlon. And you know how intense triathletes are and they tell you like all the things you need to do to get faster. So I hopped into some local crits for speed training <laughs> and then I just like 
won. And then next thing you know, I'm at the Olympic training center and you know it in Colorado Springs and I have a ticket to Europe and I'm still terrified of clipping into my bicycle. Like I'm falling over at the start line. That was me. I still do that sometimes too, but I try not to. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. And, that, and, and then things, things really just took off. You got basically identified by USA Cycling and then they, they kind of picked yeah. you to come, come along. And then what, a few years later, you're what, bronze medalist in the team time trial? Yep. Racing Pretty for awesome. Astana. Yeah, I um, you know, won stages in Tour de San Luis, winning stage in Belgium, on the podium at UCI World Championships in the team time trial. And it was a really incredible experience. Um, I loved it and I hated it. I mean, as you know, like also like in tennis, I felt like it was in my back foot a lot. You know, you're racing against people that have done this since childhood, and I'm still, you know, ooh, that that descent looks scary. <laughs> What's around the next yeah. corner? <laughs> still clipping in, you know, th things like that. <laughs> but uh, I really loved racing in Europe for that reason, though, because I, the races were really hard and really long, and. Um, you know, be on a fun team where you're the only American. I really, I actually like flourished in those situations. Um, it was a blast. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. Then I, um, you know, then I'm starting on these lines, you know, for really cool races that people dream of doing. And I was very like, no, oh, when's dinner time? <laughs> like, oh, there's going to be some more, you know, cow poop in Belgium at Flanders. That's, uninspiring yeah that's like such a cool race <laughs> or then also like you get to see someone hit a light pole and I was like well that's scary um and I had a really bad crash so I was always very um I'm very still very risk adverse um and this is the risk and the reward and I had my job that was outside of bikes and my family and dealing with racing with a traumatic brain injury and um antidepressants for a couple years and just going like what am I doing? And uh, I, therapy helped a lot. And the therapist asked, like, will you choose your health over results? And then that's where I'm in some bike race in Belgium. And I hit my brakes in the final turn because I'm like, out, <laughs> not worth it. And then I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> like, there's another young woman that would love this opportunity. <laughs> and here I am, like, purposely breaking and getting the hell out of the way. <laughs> October 22nd, we had Leo Rogers on. That was a great chat. That was a that good was a one. That was a yeah. great one. That was a great one. Yeah, he was where he was. Uh, I think he was in San Francisco getting ready to cheer on his buddies doing the, that hill climb. Race. Yeah, that crazy fixie hill climb, right? But yeah, but yeah, what an inspiration, Leo. You know, I'd, I'd seen a YouTube video of him before and just really inspiring. Yeah, I mean, he, oh, and he has done, uh, speaking of YouTube and Leo Rogers, you can tell we do these things spontaneously. This unscripted. Uh, he he has done a episode of riding fixed up mountains with pros with the State Bicycle Company. That that's is right. Totally worth watching. Yeah. So so Leo and State have done some stuff together too. So that's definitely worth checking out. So here's a little, little bit of our conversation with Leo Rogers. Well, we're we're Pete and I are big fans of State Bicycle. And uh, nice. they have that video there. What's it called? Riding fixed gears up mountains with pros or something like that. That's the first time I saw you, Leo. And, uh, <laughs> I kind of heard about your story. And it was really, it was super inspiring. Very. Thank inspiring. you. Thank you. And um, and when Pete told me you were coming on, I was just yeah, super excited. He was pretty super fired. Excited. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. 
but it was yeah, good. You, it was really good. You know, yeah, I mean, you know, to dive a little deeper, like I'd love to kind of hear about your story. You obviously had have had some setbacks, and you've you've uh, come full circle, and now are just like a huge inspiration to to so many people. You know, including myself, and I think I speak for Pete as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So you you had an accident when you were younger and. Yeah, you know, the, the motorcycle accident would kind of, you know, made me think about life a little bit more and yeah. would really want me to, uh, like, raise my kids. You know, yeah. Yeah, I still went to school for it, you know, uh-huh. thinking I can, like, overcome my fears, but just lost the whole passion for it. And uh, I was like, you know, why don't I just start working on, like, bicycles again? I had, like, you know, a little, little taxi job. I was a cab driver. I'd be yeah. cabbing from, like, four to four, so it was, like, zombie hours, see all the weird stuff. <laughs> Then I'll, you know, have the kids in the morning, take them to school, and then, you know, all my free time. And I'll just be buying and selling bikes off of Craigslist. And just kind of got in it, you know, back in it from there. And, you know, just still kept the, the mechanical side point. You know, I just always wanted to tinker on stuff. And, you know, RC cars kind of helped out as well. But the bikes was like, you know, like the next tool besides having a bunch of cars in your, in your yard. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and you have a real fond... Uh, Fondness for fixed gear, for fixed gear. Yeah, it's the, I love the simplicity. It's like driving a stick shift again. Yeah. So uh, that was, you know, after coming from motorcycles and just my second vehicle was a stick shift. And I was just like, oh, this is it right here. You got to have control of this thing. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, a beautiful um, minimalism to it, right? It's such an elegant machine. It is. It's so it's just so simple. Yeah, and that, speaking of which, those those crits there in San Francisco, is there a category of fixed gear racing or is it all fixed gear crits? Oh, fixed gear only. No brakes. Don't even need them. Save the weight. Really? That is crazy. Yeah. It's hardcore. It's, 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 it's real. It's a real relationship. That's for sure. <laughs> love hate. Definitely a love hate. I, I saw a video of you yesterday bombing through. I think it was somewhere in Florida. I think maybe Miami. You, were, you and some buddies were just zipping through the through the uh, downtown area. You know. Yeah, I, yeah. I was, I, was, I was pretty impressed. You got some skill. You got some pretty mad skills. I would say. Yeah. I, I would say that came from motorcycles, from being the, the reckless person. That's why I'm like so humble. Because <laughs> I was that that kid doing that shit on motorcycles. Yeah. So you know, yeah. you you know it's. I get it in every so often, but, you know, I had to slow the pace down a little bit, slow sure. the speed down. Yeah, sure, sure. And then what's this tall bike you have? Like, that thing's awesome. Oh, man. Uh, that kind of happened on an accident, but, yeah, yeah got a tall bike back in Florida. <laughs> yeah, how does how does that work? So you, you, somebody welded a bike on top of another bike? And then- yeah, they're two all-city uh, big blocks just welded together. And um, it kind of just became a thing. Started with stickers, and my my friend he's he's been riding it down there, so he got it all painted and stuff. I'm like, okay, it's looking nice. It's looking nice. Um, I so bet yeah. it's pretty cool. I bet it's pretty cool up there. It's a whole different perspective. You know, it it is that, like you know yeah. riding a, a taller fixed gear. Yeah, you know, it's like I don't know if you've seen that one guy that had the two Cannondales a while back, like the aluminum ones. Maybe yeah. I got one that was like kind of a little inspiration from that. So we just like, fuck it, let's do it. We got two frames. Which one's the better one? Put it on the bottom. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, problem solved. Yeah. That is great. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, let's hear about your racing. When did you start racing? Uh, I've been getting more into the gravel stuff. So 
any like any of these nice. big events, I've been I've been wanting to do stuff like that. That's just for me, it's just way more challenging. You know, they'll tell you, oh, it's like three thousand feet of climbing, and it's a dead ass lie. <laughs> you're gonna be doing like four or five thousand feet of climbing, and you know, you're so pissed off at everything. You're like, you know, this is something. This is always something, and you know, that's just way more intense. You know, this and the views are always better. So, I I kind of like that punishment. Just fucking doing these crazy miles, crazy elevation. So I just been prepping for stuff like that, and being on the West Coast is uh, you know, they showed me a little bit more, like. Of these gravel events that I didn't even hear about. So it's setting it's up for next year to kind of tackle that. On November 5th, Laura King joined us. Um, since we had Laura on, we, I've seen that they have, Ted and Laura have announced that they're expecting their second. No baby. way. We no had, which is that's... super cool. So she she knew when she was on the show, obviously, but couldn't. Oh, that's wasn't great. at a point in time where they could say sure. anything about that. So there's going to be a new little new little king rock in the cycling world in about 15 years, probably. Awesome! Wow, that's <laughs> great imagine. news. That's great news. But yeah, it was uh, so nice to have her on. Just she, she's got a great perspective on uh, on cycling, uh, especially women cycling, and yeah. We're lucky to have her in the cycling community, both she and her husband Ted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Laura's Laura's super super cool. Um, so is Ted. They're absolutely a power couple in cycling, but really down to earth and awesome. So thanks, Laura, for spending some time with us. And here's a little bit of that conversation. Been working hard on getting uh, more women into cycling. I know you're working uh, rooted Vermont at like trying to get, get it fifty percent women, fifty percent men. That's awesome. Thanks. I love um, that. Do, do you put on a clinic too for women for yeah, getting used to gravel? Yes. So um, this will also be your, we'll go next year will be your, your three of the clinic. And I think, I mean, first of all, it's a huge community effort that I am like, we have a pretty special women's community here in Vermont that you know, one of my biggest fears in moving from California to Vermont was like I was going to be isolated without any of the same kind of cycling and outdoor community that I used to have in the Bay Area. And I was completely wrong in that. In fact, it was even stronger. And um, collectively, this community has really come together. And we've we just really felt strongly that instead of um, just opening more slots to women, we felt like we needed to kind of take a step back and do the work to first help them to get to that point. Maybe it rooted isn't even the goal that they want, but ultimately getting more women on bikes would serve the greater purpose of what we really are trying to achieve. And through that, it's been, I mean, I think we underestimated the power of that clinic retreat weekend and, um, how much it would impact people and, um, how much it would also kind of help pay it forward. And so we had this last year, we had 240 applicants. It's a free clinic for the weekend. We had over 20 mentors and skill leaders. And, um, so we were able to host 100 of those women and 50% of them are from Vermont. 50% are from out of state. And, um, a big kind of part of the application is, you know, how are you going to take what you learned from this weekend and apply it back to your community? And, it's been really neat to see, I mean, because we are limited by how, how much we can do just in one place. It's like, 
this feels like it exponentially grows our effort. So, you know, we have not only we have people coming to the clinic who come as beginners and then the next year have developed into mentors, which is a really awesome thing to yeah. see, um, to be growing leaders, but also to see people going back to their communities. There's one woman um, who came to us from Houston and she's gone back and begun the Houston Gravel Collective and has tons of riders coming to get together and meet. And and that's just kind of opened our eyes to like, okay, this is, this is, I guess, like a great model for how we can feel like we're um, affecting a larger, you know, group of women than we, that with just the, what we have, the tools that we have and the, you know, the, the one weekend we have where I feel like we're maximizing what we can do. So that's been pretty special. And just because of the, because of the momentum from that and the community that's developed, I mean, these women who meet this weekend are also meeting up at gravel rides around the country and feel like they kind of have this, you know, this, this team or this community. Um, we really felt strongly that it was not going to be challenging to reach 50% now that we have kind of done that work. So yeah, we're, we're excited to finally, we knew that was a goal from the beginning, but we knew it would take some couple years to kind of get there. So we're excited to announce that this year and and be able to uh, achieve that goal. It's going to be awesome. On November 11th, we had Tyler Monroe on. Tyler has been racing bikes uh, for over 40 years in your old stomping grounds, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, when I first started racing my bike, yeah, he was a, you know, a mentor of mine and he was on the same cycling team, the CCB International, and just a, a local Northeast U.S. Uh, cycling team, and based out based out of uh, Eastern Massachusetts. And uh, yeah, just great, great guy. Loves riding his bike, racing his bike, and incredibly strong, incredibly humble, and incredibly giving. Yeah, he, he taught me a lot. Taught me a lot. And the first thing was how to put my wheel on straight. Yeah, yeah, he's de he's <laughs> definitely like he's right there with Steve Pucci for you, right? Like oh yeah, he's one of yeah. those guys. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, and and uh, and across all disciplines too. He he rides rides and races mountain bikes, cross, road. He's uh, he's a beast, crits, whatever. So yeah, here's a little bit of our conversation with Tyler Monroe. Thanks, Ty. Um, well, it's incredible. You're still racing your bike. You started in 1978, and uh, I mean, I'm sure what a wild ride it's been. I think I think it's on, on, on Jakob's podcast. There, he said, or you said that you started. Uh, it was during the blizzard of '78, which I remember. I was a little bit younger, and I remember school getting canceled for a week, and and you found snowshoes. I found snowshoes. Yep, and when I grew uh, up on a farm, and yeah, yeah. And that's and, when you uh, realized you had an engine. I did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I probably didn't realize it in those terms then, but I knew a little more, a little more, a little more, a little further, a yeah. little further. Let's try this today. And you know how it goes, you guys. You know? So, yeah, that's when I found out I was an endurance athlete. So, you know, that's great. Yeah. And, and then soon, soon, soon thereafter, came along the bike. Yep. Soon, I, I was just yeah. riding on my own, and then, like I said before, I ran into John Green, and 
Yeah. Uh, he got me going with those guys on Tossville, the CCB guys. And, and uh, we, um, you know, I used to ride every week down there. Then I started racing. And, uh, you know, the early years were, were great. You know, I mean, it's so much different now than, than it was then. Every, every time you went to a race, I mean, there was no internet. And, you know, you had to sign up through the mail. And, and you went and it was like, for me, anyway, it was like driving into the smoke, you know, and I love that. Like you went, you just never knew what to expect. You know, you never knew how your bike was supposed to be set up. If you were doing it right or you only had bits of information that you didn't know about. And that was so much fun to me. You know, I, I really, you know, I miss those days because now it's just you go and you look at the Cat 5 field. And I, I make a point to look at the Cat 5 field because it's like the best equipment in the world. It's like, oh, wow. When I'm looking for a new bike, I go to the Cat 5 field. It's like, oh, okay, that's that's what to get right there, you know. And, you know, and the sport is just, it's full of information now. And and I think a lot of the fundamentals get skipped from, you know, the training plans and people want to get fast. And they want to get, they're going to want to get fast now. They want it instantly now, you know. And, and I think over all my years, I've learned more from the mistakes I've made than I have by the things I've done right. Yeah, it's you know, great. It's, yeah, so it's it's definitely um, it's changed a lot. When did the when did the switch flick that you realized that you had to be racing your bicycle, not just riding it? Because it's a big difference, and it changes your relationship with the sport for sure, right? Yeah, yeah, it did. You know, it's funny because I mean, I'm not really super competitive, and and I got to tell you, probably the reason why I've stayed at it all these years is what I've gotten out of racing personally for my business and as a father, as a human being, even, you know, I mean, it's just the stuff that I've seen and the stuff that you have to absorb and the stuff that you have to absorb right now and let go by, you know, and you have to process it in a, in a second, let it go by, or you get caught up in it. And, you know, you see guys, they get caught up in a battle in the middle of a race. And I'm like, we have 40 laps to go, you know, just let it go. and just, <laughs> keep rolling, you know, but all of that stuff, I mean, it's been invaluable for me as a person, you know, I mean, I just look at things now and I just, you know, people, I won't argue with people and I'll just shut up and you just watch people just kind of bury themselves by talking too much. And, you know, it's all bike race stuff. And, um, you know, I mean, I knew early on that I wanted to race and I, you know, I, I love the, I love the, um, of course, I love to win, but I more like to just do good, you know, just do as good as I can do and put it out there. And even if you don't win, you're going to try and, you know, and I get so much out of it like that. But just the, the whole like feeling of the race, like when you feel somebody, I love pushing people, pushing them, pushing them, pushing them until they make a mistake or, you know, or, you know, feeling their nerves or, you know, trying to guess, it's like, yeah, that guy is not going to make it. And then they do it like, I guess I learned something there, didn't I? You know, and, you know, I, I love all of that. And, and um, you know, I still love that to the day. And that that's why I do it. And that's why I'll keep doing it. On November 18th, we had Peter Coombe from Wheel Science on, who will have back, I hope, I think. I know that I got some messages. People really appreciated the insight because wheels 
everybody talks about how like, yeah, upgrade your wheels, right? That's like the first thing you do when you get a road bike. If you're serious is you go upgrade your wheels. And a lot of people are just spending money. They don't really know why or how he's a tremendous resource. So I thought this was a really cool chat. Yeah, great conversation. Yeah, I learned a lot about wheels, tire width, you name it. Yeah, because the science is evolving. So stuff that we used to tire think, pressure. if you, yeah. yeah, if you learned about tires and pressure and some of those things 15 or 20 years ago, you should probably brush up. <laughs> you probably thought you knew it's probably changed. So give this one a listen with Peter. For sure. <laughs> So that I, I'm taking away a, a solid yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, okay. Question two. This one relates to rim width, which wasn't something either I, A, wasn't paying attention or B, has changed a lot in the last little while and there's more uh, range or consideration in that yeah. respect. It seemed to me that your rim width was your rim width back in the day, or at least to some degree, and that seems to have changed quite a bit. So what do people need to know about with tire selection and rim width? Do they have anything to do with one another? And you should, should you avoid skinny tires with thicker, with a, with a greater rim width or vice versa? Um, so really, it, again, it's, it's a question of what, picking the right tool for the job. Um, and, and thinking, well, what, what is, what is it I want to do with my bike? So if you are, if you're, if you're, doing criterium racing, right? Or, or long distance road racing. And you're the type of bloke that wants to race away from everybody else. You wanna have an, a very aerodynamic wheel, which means that having a, selecting the right tire to match your rim width to give you the aero profile is incredibly important. Because what you don't- oh, Okay. Yeah, so the, the, what you want to do is, essentially you want your wheel to, to look like an airplane wing. So the head guys and the zip guys patented what they call the, tero the toroidal rim back in, I can't remember what the year was. Um, anyway, a long time ago. And what they developed, what they, they, they showed that the, the rim that goes wider in the middle, and it's, um, that gives better crosswind handling. Um, it doesn't give, like the classic V-shaped rim, which was the original type of rim, um, if you that's great in a straight line or if there's no wind but if you have crosswind the wider middle of the rim gives you better stability it doesn't make the wheel faster in a straight line but the wider middle of the rim gives you better stability and ability to handle crosswind so but that profile needs to be smooth so if you've got a 25 mil a wheel that's 25 mils wide at the rim width and 28 mils wide at the widest point your best aero outcome is actually a 23 mil tire on the front of that. Um, Continental and Envy actually did a really good article on this a few years ago to show that, that the 23 mil tire and the 25 mil brake surface and the 28 mil middle of the rim gives a perfect aero shape. Um, right, because it's more uh, oval. Yeah, because it's more oval. Okay. That's, a, that's exactly right. So yeah. um, you can even go so far as to have that set up on your front wheel and have a 25 mil tire on the back to give you a bit lower rolling resistance. I actually, we actually used to deal with a couple of triathlon pros and that's how they set their wheels up for the, for the, the time trials. Um, so that, that, that sort of ratio, 23 mil um, tire on a 25 mil rim or a 25 mil tire on a 28 mil rim 
will give you that perfect aero profile, right? So that that's how that sort of relationship works. If you are after pure aerodynamic gains, you want to make that shape. If you want okay. to go, if you want to go off road and 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 things like that, and they're not so interested in that relationship, and really you can do anything you like. I mean, we, we've got um. Two, two road wheel series that can go um, off-road as well if you're going CX or gravel racing. One's 25 mils wide, one's 28 mils wide. They'll take the same tires, really, um, with, within a normal range. I mean, no, if you're going to put a 40 mil tire on, I mean, that's within a normal range. Those rims will take anything really from a 23, 25 up to 32 to 36. They'll go on both. You know, it, and there's no real optimum ratio in that scenario where, where your tire is going to be forming what they call a bulb shape anyway. It, it doesn't really matter. That once, once you've broken that oval shape, it matters Once you've broken that oval shape. I mean, obviously, the, the bigger the bulb, the, the more drag that's going to create. But once you get away from that oval shape, it doesn't really matter. Then it comes down to a choice of rather than thinking, oh, what? tires am i going to run with what rim flip that on its head and go well these are the tires i want to use so let's put it the other way around it's not well, well what tire do i want it to match my rims think oh well actually what rims do i want to match my tire what am i trying to achieve what am i again what's the right tool for the job i'm doing december 15th we had guy townsend on I've had the pleasure of getting to know Guy a little bit over on the Everesting podcast because he is a serial Everester, as he's described himself. He's done it 11 times, but he came on to chat with us specifically about his climb up what is called the world's, the, the hardest climb in the world, which is Mauna Kea on the big island of Hawaii. Sounded, sounded brutally hard. You know, he, he looks like he's a fit, fit guy, and he, he spent some time, you know, walking in his tennis shoes up that thing. Yeah, uh, numb it, sound, it sounded brutal. Sounded brutal. I'm not yeah. interested. <laughs> but, you, but I think you are. I'm, I think you are. I'm. I'm interested. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. I'm interested for sure. Yeah, that that and Mauna Loa, which he also tells us about, uh, which is some Tom wrote up. Um, which is like the halfway point kind of thing, right? Like well, no, you can kind of get to the halfway point, and then you can sort of go up either one because you want to. I mean, oh, ideally, if you're into it for the challenge, you start from sea level. But one is you know, one volcanic mountain in one direction and one's in the opposite direction, both huge climbs. Uh, but uh, the world's hardest climb, it's hard to argue with too, because I've seen, um, I've seen Jeremiah Bishop and Tyler, Tyler Pierce go up at two. On that's YouTube right. And it's, that's right. It, it, it's hard to, I think it's hard to beat that distinction as the world's toughest climb, but guy's a great storyteller. So here's a little bit of our conversation with Guy Townsend. Yeah. So you had a proper day on the bike, really, when you well, went to the start. Exactly right. So, so because the real start is, uh, you know, obviously you've got to ride it from sea level, but the real start is when you get to the start of the access road, because that's where it, that's where it just becomes a whole other level. But yeah, I've got five hours, twenty minutes of solid climbing in my legs when I get to the access road turn. So was it paved all the way to the access road? Yeah, it's paved okay. all the way. And actually, it's, okay. it's, it's, there's some traffic, but it's got good shoulder. Um, 
there's quite a lot of rubbish on the shoulders there always is so but i was on ground tires, so i wasn't gonna puncture um and it felt to be honest it felt really safe i used daytime blinkers yeah good. the whole way through um and i was i was wearing reasonably visible clothing but actually honestly it felt pretty safe um and i think if you come in from hilo from the east if it's the same you've got a good shoulder um coming in from hilo from the east it's a, it's 30k less as an overall so <laughs> from in common wind when we had our first stop like an hour and a half in and he just said yeah this is all part of the challenge particularly if you come from from the west and i said ah should i have come from the east and he was like mm, yes <laughs> <laughs> so like, okay, that's great right. so I, i've just made life even harder for myself so anyway right so we so we get to this turn uh, onto this thing called the access road and and at that point and i'm just checking stats again um the bottom line is yeah take me five hours 20 minutes to get there and at literally like maybe 15 minutes stoppage time i was being uh really disciplined about not don't lose any time because I, I was genuinely worried i was just going to run out of daylight yeah you know, i figured right. it i'd allow 10 hours i had 10 hours of day so um it gets dark fast in hawaii yeah uh, and it all just goes down. and once that sun goes down so, um and and of course you know that sun is going to set lower down <laughs> much much earlier than that on on the summit of care but uh so um so here's some stats for you bear in mind you're at 2000 meters at this point and the next 24k average a fraction under 10 percent oh so yeah yeah but it gets worse so um so basically to the visitor center is 10k from that turn so 10k and it's uh it's nine percent average and quite a few long ramps the the steepest kilometer on the whole thing is the last k to the visitor center so it's quite hard you definitely you know i got to the visitor center i looked at the photos recently and i'm like oh yeah i can see in my face time like that's been a long ride so it took me seven and a half hours to get to the visitor center uh, that's at 2800 meters and 84 and a half k in and if you drive up it uh to the summit they they advise you to spend 30 minutes at the visitor center acclimatizing i just stop um now of course i'm on a bike so i i don't i don't pause um actually what i do is i stop and bruno and i talk tactics because this is where it all gets really horrible so you think it's been tough already but the next seven and a half k is gravel and i've no idea why because after that it turns back to 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 pavement so i have ah. no clue what, i mean I, if someone can answer that for me i'm really intrigued um, i'd say just to make it hard yeah <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, what it does do is it, it what it does do is it cuts down traffic because you yeah. you're not allowed above the visitor center without a four by four so the one upside is right. you're going to have a lot less vehicular traffic because most people, you know, most people don't necessarily have that four by four. So, um, so I guess it it stops the pure tourists um, or, or lots of them. So, so anyway, so so I uh, I eat and drink, uh, I let some air out of my tires, and I lower my seat post by by ten mil. Um, and then Bruno and I talk about the fact that he'll just hang back and just see how I cope with the gravel because and it's not we talk about gravel and i tyler i know you're you're into gravel this is basically just sand and rocks it's not gravel so it's really loose in places so it's once you lose your front wheel it's actually a front wheel that's the problem 
just mm. holding the bike straight. And it's um, the corners, unlike, say, something like outdoors where the corners are flat, the corners are the complete opposite. The corners are just brutal. So you're trying to turn these big sweeps and your front wheel is just washing out. Um, so uh, basically, I made it through the first six and a half K of the gravel um, clean and uh, and really pretty quickly. So I was like super stoked. Um, and, the, and my only regret is that you really can't look at the view because you're you're so focused on trying to keep your traction going and your front wheel straight. I literally, I mean, I look at the pictures now and I'm like, gosh, I wish I'd stopped and looked at that. Because, um, you know, this is the point where you punch through the cloud and it just becomes surreal. So our final guest of 2021 was Jessica Sarah. Yeah, the founder and race director of the Last Best Ride uh, in Whitefish, Montana. Yeah, and she's also a professional cyclist and a sports mm-hmm. nutrition entrepreneur. Um, and her ride is really, really cool. They're, they're applying to become a nonprofit. They've got scholarships involved with it yeah. too. So please check that out. It's the lastbestridemt.com. And here's a little bit of our chat with Jess, Sarah. Okay, so to go back to the last best ride really quick. Um, where it looks did you hard. Know, did did you hard. know you were going to do it in Whitefish? Like, did you know that needed to be your yeah. hub when you started thinking about building it out? And, and how did you start route planning and all of that stuff? Well, I knew my partner, Sam Boardman, and I knew we were going to move back to Whitefish. We knew we needed to get out of California. It was getting expensive. Um, and COVID really showed like places that brought out the worst or best in people and yeah we we needed something a little slower paced um even though sam races for legion which is based in la they've been supportive of riders living all over the country as most teams are but we were here in 2020 over the summer and because we weren't going to any races we started exploring and I did not realize the gravel that we have here is so insane. And we were riding in places and seeing views that I had never seen in my life growing up here. And I felt like I knew my way around pretty well. And after being at Rooted, like I said, I started thinking, why doesn't Whitefish have a race like that? Um, It turns out that it is very hard to permit a race. There's a, I think we had seven land permits, but- So much work. It's a lot of work. Because you've got this, it is. So you've got municipalities, you have other little Mm -hmm. private fiefdoms to deal with, some private lands you might have, or just any stakeholder, right? Like you're going past somebody's driveway, so they need to know about it, and you need to document that. Like, I get it. You sound like you've done this before. (laughs) Yeah, it's done. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, it's totally like. Uh, it was a huge learning experience and luckily everyone embraced it. Like even the forest service, when we first went to them, they were like, Whoa, that's, you know, 550, that's big. We've sort of, we're, they're evolving their process of how they permit because Mm -hmm. this was such a success, but, um, yeah, our gravel is so unique and so special and so hard. Like you said, Tyler, it's, you're going straight up or you're going straight down. It's, and it's not sandy but it's chunky. Um, you know, there's some gravel races that you could probably get away riding a road bike with sure. maybe like 32 tires. You you can't get away with that here or you wouldn't, it wouldn't be a very fun day. It would be a stressful day. So we knew we had like the course and the beauty and the selling point of everyone wants to visit Whitefish. Everyone wants to go to Glacier. 
So we felt like we could make it a destination and a family destination. And also it gave me the opportunity to create something that I've wanted to create my whole life, which was a scholarship. Um, because I grew up, like I said, lower income and access uh, community grants and scholarships to go to college. And that was something that I learned in high school that it was expensive to go to college and kind of had to break down my sophomore year. And my guidance counselor, Mrs. Mansfield, worked with me for almost three years on filling out scholarship applications. And I ended up completely funding my undergrad education that way. So always wanted to have my own scholarship. And as we started building this out, there's two women, Megan Snow and Elise Donovan, who um, are both gravel cyclists. Elise couldn't do the event, unfortunately. She had um, a, a personal issue come up, but they worked with me on creating the applications and creating you know, the scoring matrix and getting the applications into the schools and just really volunteered their time. But when I called Whitefish High School to talk to the guidance counselor, I found out that Mrs. Mansfield was still there. And no I graduated in 2000. So this, I was not expecting her to be there. And we had an emotional phone call and I asked her, can I name the scholarship after you? I mean, you oh, completely. You just you, gave me goosebumps. I yeah. know we were, we were bawling and I was like, you know, it's something special when an educator or an adult treats you with respect um, they put an effort into you. It, it changes how you feel about yourself. I mean, sometimes being financially disadvantaged, it doesn't make you feel very good, especially in high school. And when someone puts that effort in, it gives you this confidence and the support. And that's, you know, the theme around our scholarship is so these young women understand that, like, there's people who are coming out from all over the country to a bike race who are donating extra, who care about them. Like there's a community of support there and it's not just about the financial support. So we're hoping to grow it where we have a mentorship program, where we have a connection to professional um, internship opportunities. So there's a, there's a lot that we want to do with it. And that's why we are becoming a nonprofit. So we're in the application process to become a nonprofit. So Another huge thank you to all of our tremendous guests that we were able to host within the year of 2021. We hope that you guys had a great year. Thank you so much for listening. We really, really appreciate that. Uh, carving out a little bit of your valuable time to tune in. If you would like to support the podcast, there's a couple of important ways that you can do that. One of them is, of course, just by good old fashioned word of mouth, let people know about the show, where to find us. We're available on most podcast platforms and also just subscribing. That's a really easy way to help other people find the podcast. So thank you for doing that. We'll be back soon.